Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey there, listeners. Travis Lawrence here with another great interview on uncovering what's working and what's not in the data landscape. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the mic, Kapil Surlocker. He is the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn. Kapil has been with LinkedIn for over 10 years and has played an instrumental role in shaping the data architecture that LinkedIn is built on top of. In this episode, we will cover a wide range of topics surrounding the data architecture, from how metadata is captured and served up, future-proofing the data architecture, the shift from on-prem to Azure, and how LinkedIn monitors the quality of their data in real time. Kapil, say hello to Data Nation, and tell us a little bit more about yourself and your responsibilities at LinkedIn. Hey, data listeners, and thank you, Travis, for having me on this podcast. Very excited to be here. So I've been at LinkedIn for uh, some time now, and in my current responsibilities, I lead our, quote-unquote, the big data team. And so what that entails is supporting and building all our uh, underlying data infrastructure for all our analytics and AI and ML needs, kind of processing all of the big data, the tooling and the applications that go into supporting the needs of all our data users, AI engineers, uh, data scientists, and all our product engineers that build products on our data. Wow. So I am sure there are a wide range of data sources across LinkedIn, just having 700 plus million users across 200 regions worldwide. Can you give us so what are the main buckets of data sources that LinkedIn is ingesting and using? Absolutely. When you think about it, a lot of our data is basically generated from the user activity on our website. So imagine you go to LinkedIn.com and you decided to update your profile or make a new connection or send an invitation to somebody else, like a article in your feed, so on and so forth. So all these activities either generate the data that uh, stays in our uh, databases that then gets surfaced to other users, or would just generate the activity in terms of what are the activities that you've done on the site, right? And that gets emitted real time into Kafka. And these two are by far basically the database data as well as the telemetry data, so to speak, that gets emitted into Kafka are really the two biggest sources of data that get then ingested into quote unquote our data lake and all of the processing that goes on from there. Great. So two main sources, one is just more of your operational data. And then the second was more telemetry status updates more timely, and both Correct. go through Kafka? 
Correct. We have an internal database called Espresso that serves large part of our stack, if you will. And that hosts a lot of the like profile data, for example. So a lot of that goes into that database. And a lot of the telemetry and that kind of operational data that goes into Kafka. So Expresso is an internal, is that a homegrown application? It is a homegrown uh, database that we use, yes. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, I guess, what that is and uh, why you developed that? Yeah, so I was actually a part of the team that built it or at least started it a long time ago. And today it's at a point where it really serves a lot of the site traffic. And a part of the reason was a decade ago, which is when I went started at LinkedIn, most of the data was stored and served out of an Oracle database. And as you can imagine, those things tend to cost a lot of money and are not operationally suited for load like, like LinkedIn's. And hence, looking at the landscape of data sources that existed or databases that existed at the time, we made a decision at LinkedIn to build a new I would call it document database, right? Because that's the data model that sort of worked the best for us. And that would really scale horizontally much better and much cheaper. And so that's a decision that we made. And it took obviously a few years to build it. But today it's really at the core of serving all of our site traffic. Great. And that... Is that run on-prem servers or in the cloud? On That is correct. So like most of our infrastructure today, we run on on-prem on our data centers. Inherently, a lot of our technologies are, are agnostic in that sense, as in when we move to the cloud, these technologies will also be adapted to run on the cloud as well. Okay. Awesome. So you mentioned a data lake. What are you using a particular technology to facilitate that or... So Expresso sort of just live on top of the data lake? Does it live in parallel? Yeah, so the way to think about it, our architecture, is there are at least two sort of big, quote-unquote, islands of data that are basically connected. And the one is what I would call our serving stack. So Espresso is certainly part of it, but also if you think about it, our search indexes, our graph databases. So all of these kind of fall into that serving stack. And then you have our quote unquote, our big data ecosystem, which is founded on quote unquote, a data lake. And the data that comes into the data lake is ingested primarily from our online databases and Kafka, which is where the data then comes into that lake, which is today it's a Hadoop-based ecosystem, and various uh, workflows, now mostly written in Spark, are the ones that crunch this data and produced a lot of derived data sets onto this data lake. And from that point onwards, it goes back into the serving stack based on the kind of data that they produce. So for example, some of these data sets would be served as like another sort of key value systems back onto the site. Some of them would be search indexes. Some of them would be analytic data sets um, that are served through another homegrown system that we call Pino. And these are, this is the uh, general architecture that many of our LinkedIn products really work by. So we talked about a little bit, the main source is Kafka. And you have these two main sort of data storage places. How's the bulk of the data 
being consumed. In the data lake, and at this point, it's really an exaquite scale data lake, and the main processing technology is there. Now, the storage technology today obviously is run by HDFS, which is our Hadoop file system, split, of course, into multiple clusters that are largely segregated by the usage. So okay. depending on the type of work that you want to do, you would have different clusters that data would be housed in. The processing of the data itself, there are a few different technologies that people use based on naturally what they're trying to do with that data. So most of our workloads, actually a vast majority of the workloads come or happen as part of the machine learning training. And a lot of that is feature generation, then followed by your traditional machine learning stack, as well as the newer deep learning stack. So a lot of that is handled basically by our Spark infrastructure, and okay. the deep learning is largely done on TensorFlow today. And there are still some legacy pipelines that are based on the old MapReduce technology. So you have your Hive and Big and so on and so forth. But those are really on the decline, and pretty much all the new workflows that get written largely use uh, Spark for the traditional ML and the feature prep and so on and then TensorFlow for our deep learning needs. And then you have another class of use cases, which might you might imagine to be more traditional analytics type use cases. And those are mostly served by our Presto stack today, okay. which is largely based on SQL. And real-time analytics use cases are served by a homegrown engine that we built at LinkedIn called Pino. And then we open sourced it in a couple of years ago. So that's our big data stack where the data gets consumed and processed. Okay. Awesome. So is it fair to say, I guess, Spark is doing the bulk of your data transformation? Absolutely. Yeah. In the offline world, pretty much the majority and nearly all of the new workflow, prep, the data preparation workflows, they are almost all on Spark. Is, is so is that what's lo what's loading Expresso? Yeah, so the way to think about our data flow is you have your transactional and operational data sources, which are, say, in the online database like Espresso, right? So when you go to the site and LinkedIn.com, chances are that the data that gets served, depending upon the type of data it is, the transactional data largely is likely to come from a store like Espresso. The analytical data is likely to store come from stores like Pino. And these are your low latency data stores, right? Okay. The data lake and the big data ecosystem primarily is high throughput and longer latency workflows. So these workflows are the ones that typically take of the order of minutes or hours, or sometimes in the case of very complex workflows can even take days, right? And the two worlds are basically connected through, on the ingest, we built a technology called Goblin, which we, we named it that because it gobbles in the data. And the places it is gobbling in the data from are, like I said before, Kafka and Espresso, right? So the database data is ingested from Espresso. The, the event and the streaming data is ingested from Kafka. And Goblin effectively pulls in these data sets into our Hadoop-based data lake, where it then becomes available to all of the data processing that we talked about. Great. And yeah, no, that's really helpful overview. How do you ensure high quality 
data throughout the life cycle. There's so much data moving in from so many different sources and being consumed. Right. How do you keep up to date with that and maintain it? Yeah, that's a really great question. And one of th- a few of the decisions that we made in terms of how the architecture is laid out, but also how it is governed, I think I've made a ton of difference in terms of data quality, right? And there are some technologies that we have built as well to ensure data quality for all of these data sources that I'm, I'm happy to talk about as well. So to begin with, one of the decisions that we made fairly early on in LinkedIn's data journey is the decision to make strong schemas, right? So rather than dumping all of the data and trying to decipher schemas later on read, which really sorts of puts the onus of quality and the consumers of the data, by and large, we have invested in making sure that the data that is produced itself tends to be as high quality as possible. And that is by one, holding the producers accountable to declare schemas that are reviewed by peers, just like code, ensuring that the data that is produced actually conforms to those data schemas. And we have a bunch of technologies where we are we monitor the health of the data in terms of the schemas, the times of arrival, the data sizes, and so on and so forth, to ensure that the, the data not only arrives on time, but also the metadata parameters that we are looking out of the data match what we expect. And then on top of that, we've invested in a bunch of technologies that we've talked about in our blog as well, like Data Sentinel, Third Eye for Anomaly Detection, and Root Cause Analysis. And all of these sort of complete that puzzle, if you will, in terms of making sure that we have the right tooling in terms of ensuring data quality. And I assume one of these tools probably source the metadata associated to a lot of these fields being stored. Absolutely. And that you touched on a really good point there, Travis, and which is of, of metadata. And it is something that interestingly we realized a few years ago in terms of the gap that we had on our ecosystem. So while we had these sources of data and by and large we had a pretty good system, although it's something that we continuously improve to make sure that we have a high data quality. We didn't necessarily have investment in terms of building high quality metadata. And it is something that we recognized and then we invested efforts into um, improving and building the ecosystem and the right systems around it. And after a couple of iterations, the system that we ended up building there to centralize our metadata is a system we called uh, Data Hub. And it is also another one of those uh, systems that we have open sourced and we have other companies besides LinkedIn uh, using as well. And what Data Hub has done is rather than having metadata in silos that are spread all over your data ecosystem and are therefore very hard to piece together and make sense out of, Instead, what we have is all of that metadata 
is centrally so stored and served in, in Data Hub. And the analogy that I always like to use is think about driving around without using any of these online maps in your GPS or your phone. And if you have to do it today, it would be almost hard to imagine to do something oh, yeah. like that. Don't ask me to go to a new town without a GPS. Exactly, exactly. And in our data ecosystem, unfortunately, for a long time, you had a situation where there wasn't any way to navigate through that data ecosystem. If you wanted to find out what data sets even you want to use, chances are people turned around to their colleagues sitting at their next next desk and asked them what they were using so they could start hunting around in, in around that same data space also. And especially as you start to ask more interesting questions of that data. For example, hey, who owns that data? Who are the other oh, yeah. people who are using that data? Where does this particular data set come from? What are the source data sets that this particular data set was derived from? And without a centralized metadata system, you're really completely lost. And data quality is another one that, that suffers when you don't have it. So certainly you have search and discovery, data lineage, data quality, all of these really depend on, on that metadata because any of the question you want to ask turns into knowing something more about the data itself. Great. And I assume there's probably a full team that sort of drives and manages this metadata and governance and ensures that it's kept up to date. Or is that kind of a collective effort? It's a little bit of both, actually. And you actually pointed out, I think, another interesting part about how that metadata itself is set up is our first iteration towards building that metadata was actually to create a central team and to give them the responsibility of crawling all over and ingesting that metadata into that metadata repository, if you will. Right. And there were, as you can imagine, a few challenges associated with it, which we learned after that experience, which is it became responsibility of that team to be responsible for all of the metadata that was generated in a diversity of data sources. And that becomes a never-ending uh, uh, game of trying to keep up as your other systems are evolving around you. And you have all of these data sets being created endlessly and you have the central team trying to run out of the run after the entire ecosystem and trying to ensure that your metadata stays nice and good and that really was a learning for us when we did the second iteration of the system data hub what we realized is push is actually much better than pull to ensure the scalability of the system so instead of asking a central team to crawl and pull all of the metadata into the system, we in fact ended up defining ways to publish metadata into the system. Mm. So we created a push API, had things like metadata lineage events, metadata creation events. And the way that simplifies is now your entire ecosystem is working with you to populate that metadata graph and keep that updated. So whether you have uh, data sets that are being created in uh, Hadoop or data sets that are being created in your other data sources, each of them have clear APIs to publish their metadata changes into your system, which then keeps it up to date. And even though the team itself that manages the data hub metadata system itself is centralized, 
the publishing of the metadata into it becomes a distributed activity. And that's a much, much better architecture to have. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I can imagine difficulties trying to chase down the, the metadata as it constantly changes day by day. Exactly. And this is this is not only a technology problem as a result, but also is a cultural problem because sure. you really have to train your ecosystem into doing this well. And that's certainly not something that happens overnight. No, not at all. Based off what I gathered, it sounds like LinkedIn is in the process or has my, is thinking about migrating more to the cloud. Is that accurate? That, that is correct. So right now we have most of our stack in our own data centers on-prem, if you will. And we have a beginnings of a footprint onto our Azure cloud. And our long-term direction is obviously to migrate all our system from on-prem to cloud. Awesome. Do you envision that as you get more and more into the cloud that some of these homegrown or open source solutions, you may switch more to a managed solution or what would be the process to determine that or to decide yeah yeah so i think it's it's going to be a mix obviously and certainly i think there's a lot of great systems that are available in the cloud just as saas products and so on and part of what's so great about the cloud is of course the availability of some of these systems but also the the elasticity that you would get in terms of addressing all of your provisioning concerns and so on and so forth now at the same time, it has to be balanced by what are the unique requirements that we have at LinkedIn, given our specific use cases, as well as the scale that we uh, operate at. And the other part of the data ecosystem, especially, is how dynamic it is. And even in the last few years, how many new systems that we have built, how many new systems that we have adopted from outside, as well as the new systems that we have built at LinkedIn and then open sourced. And as we migrate to the cloud, that balance certainly will change. And we certainly look forward to using many more of the managed services that are available in the cloud. And we you know, look forward to contributing some of the systems that we build back to rest of the community as well. Sure. Absolutely. Is there any particular product or tool that you're using today and you're going to migrate to? So whether that's Cosmos DB, Azure Synapse, ADLS, is there any particular one where you're like, yep, we're, we're migrating once we get there? Yeah. So the one that we are absolutely migrating to right now, as a matter of fact, is moving from the Hadoop distributed file system or HDFS to basically ADLS and the ABS. So this is the blob store and the ADLS is the file system layer on top. And that was a no brainer because there really did not make sense. And that's one of the elastic storage that you get through the blob storage in ADLS is a huge productivity gain compared to trying to maintain your own underlying storage and provisioning machines to do it. And that will certainly be the technology that we are migrating to. And as we get on to ADLS and ABS, we'll you know continue using a combination of things that we've built in-house as well as the other technologies that are available to us on Azure. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. As you transition to the cloud, are you doing it incrementally, so to speak, where some app, some consumers will switch over their kind of prod instance or their prod consuming to the cloud while you still may have some on-prem? Are you doing more of a big bang approach or what does that look like? Yeah, so I think I think it's a little bit of 
maybe more the former rather than the latter, because as you can imagine at our scale, it, a, a big bag migration itself, I think, uh, would be an interesting one because you can't switch the entire serving stack overnight to the cloud. And yeah. you also have to be conscious of the scale challenges, the cost challenges, and so on and so forth. It will be hybrid for a period of time with the end goal of being being entirely on Azure. Are the sort of the largest challenges that you have faced already in that transition, or do you anticipate facing? I think a lot of it is learning to and making the changes to your stack to operate in the cloud environment. And we are still, I would say, relatively speaking, early on. We are we haven't finished obviously migrating, so we're going to be in this journey for a bit longer. But a lot of it is it's something that we're learning on the way, primarily based on our scale needs, I would say, because a lot of the things that we have made made to work because we have the luxury of operating on-prem where we can optimize the combined storage and compute layers where you get benefit of the locality and the in the big data ecosystem, for example, in Hadoop, you have the, the rack localities and all of these benefits that you get. And the, the difference in... The cloud ecosystem that you obviously get is the storage and compute are basically disaggregated. And it's a, it's a huge win as well because you can scale both of them independently. But it also means you have to pay attention to the next level details of performance and uh, bandwidth and so on and so forth. So lots lots of learnings there. Yeah, right. I can imagine. And when I was listening to a previous podcast you were on, you spoke about sort of future-proofing the architecture. And this, this particular instance was talking about utilizing an API data service layer. Can you expand upon that for our listeners and talk about how it's done? Yeah, I was referring to a system that we built at LinkedIn a few years ago called uh, Dolly, which was really trying to solve data access at LinkedIn. We named it accordingly, like data access at LinkedIn, Dolly. And the idea of it was, if we go back to our big data journey at LinkedIn, we started pretty early. And as a result, a lot of the stack was really geared towards the way a lot of big data systems are architected today, which is you have a distributed file system on which you store your data as files. And then you have all of these engines, whether you had legacy or the newer engines, and they're all operating against those raw data sets that are basically stored as files. And the big difference from your old school databases, if you will, is your abstraction has changed from the uh, database tables and data sets to basically what you have as files, right? And that leads to a number of problems because without that abstraction layer in between, it's much harder to evolve what you actually store. And an example of that was a storing data formats. So most of the online data and that came into the data lake was stored as Avro files. And while Avro can be great for your sort of this transactional data storage systems, when it came to the big data computing, columnar databases or columnar data formats, whether you use Parquet or C, they tend to be much more efficient at compute because they are columnar, right? And so you read a lot less data compared to row-oriented formats. And when you 
do these kind of changes without having the right API abstraction in between, you end up having to effectively, you cannot do that in a transparent manner to your consumers, right? So any right. such migration, no. you have to involve your consumers at all times, which is obviously very disruptive. If you compare this to the online services world, we have learned a service-oriented abstraction for many years now, right? And it's hard to imagine kind of building a online ecosystem without service-oriented architecture today. But the quote-unquote the big data world, the offline world has been a bit slower in terms of adopting it. And I think right. today you see those concepts uh, a lot more in, in these ecosystems. But I think when we started a few years ago, there really wasn't a lot of that. So DALI was fairly early in terms of making it clear that the abstraction that we wanted was similar to what you would get with sort of tables and views, which is our, our database concepts that we've had for uh, decades, but in the big data world, they were still fairly new. And I think having that abstraction layer and DALI, I think, is unique in a few ways that it not only provided us the table abstraction, but also provided the more traditional what you have in databases, which is the views. And that sort of becomes the contract that producers have with their consumers that what they're offering effectively are, you know, these tables and views. And behind that abstraction, you're then free to change the layout on storage, your data formats, or really many other things without impacting your consumers. And that you can think of as quote-unquote future-proofing. Because while today we think Parquet or in our case ORC is the most effective format, maybe Another year, two years, maybe somebody comes up with a better format. And when you want to leverage that, you want to be able to do it in a way without disrupting all your consumers. And that's the future proofing that you get through a good abstraction and an API. Yeah, no, well, I love that. And I think that's necessary to be agile and to switch, be, to be able to switch out different components of the architecture without making absolutely on downstream. If you could wave a magic wand on any one part of the architecture to instantly improve it, what would it be? <laughs> I think that's a, that's an interesting question. I think in terms of the different layers, metadata is, I think, certainly one that we talked about. And it is something that we have gotten much, much better at. But having that sort of instant ability to have new storage technologies and new compute engines and so on and so forth, if we can instantly plug them into our metadata system, that would, of, of course, be amazing. Another one, which is an interesting problem, is as you have these compute engines that kind of evolve at their um, you know own pace, and you'll always have a, a multitude of these because they're all good at different things. Some are um, really good at batch processing. Some are really good at stream processing. Some are really good at uh, as a SQL engine. Some are much better at offering APIs that are more developer-friendly, if you will. And we still don't necessarily have a unified abstraction, if you will, that solves all these problems. And I don't know if that it is possible even to do something like that. If you know, you could wave a magic wand and solve that. I think that'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I agree. It's quite the challenge. What has been your biggest lessons learned through the development of the current architecture and these different applications and programs and data layers? 
Yeah, so I think I think the single biggest lesson I would say, and and there are, there are a few different things, right? But I think the biggest one that I really want our, our, our listeners to take away is many of these changes are not purely technical. You absolutely need really good technology foundations, and you really. Uh, need really good platforms. And it is something that we have done quite well at LinkedIn, but none of these were purely technical solutions either. It requires great collaboration, especially like some of these things that I talked about in terms of our metadata layers or systems like Dolly and so on and so forth. It, it requires a high level of collaboration in your data ecosystem between your producers and consumers. And it requires a ton of executive buy-in. And it's something that we've we've had in abundance, I think, both both of those at LinkedIn, which has really allowed us to make progress on a lot of these fronts. How have you all enabled strong collaboration between your producers and consumers? What does that look like on a daily basis? Yeah, so... I think as a cultural tenet, one of the things that benefits LinkedIn is what we call internally at LinkedIn as one LinkedIn, which is this philosophy that's, that the entire company is really operating as one. And while you always have these different teams and different business units, you have that deep cultural sort of buy-in into sort of optimizing for the whole and not just around optimizing for the silos, right? Now, in terms of what it looks day to day, we have created sort of different forums, if you will. One of the, as an example, a couple of years ago, we were wrestling with trying to bring a lot of our non-R&D teams and forming more effective partnerships and collaborations with them in terms of enabling a number of massive changes to the data ecosystem. And in particular, we were in the middle of moving from our traditional Teradata-based data warehouse to a Hadoop-based, if you want to call it a data lake or a lake house or whatever terms that we would like to use. And that that was a massive challenge. And having a forum, we called it like a data user council that sort of brings together the leaders of these various organizations to share plans ahead of time, hear the concerns from around the table to really chart a way forward, I think that's been extremely helpful to us to do more effective change management. Yeah, I know that's definitely a key underlying pin to enable any of the stuff we were talking about. Correct. That strong correct. Yeah, communication. What's next for the data architecture? So where are you going from here that we haven't discussed? So let's say, I think we talked about, we certainly talked about our cloud migration. I think... We didn't talk about maybe data quality as much. I think that's a ever-continuing focus for us, not only in terms of ensuring the data quality, but how do we make it easier for people to monitor and take action when you see deviations from data quality, right? Explaining a lot of changes to the data ecosystem and the other part that we didn't really talk about is how much metrics matter to us at LinkedIn and how much of our culture around, say, experimentation. It's very metrics-driven in terms of you want to be able to monitor a very large number of metrics and you want to observe deviations from it and you want to be able to explain when you have changes changes to this metrics and so on. And we're building a lot of these systems that do 
do better at these? For example, how do you explain, monitor and explain anomalies? How do you, when you find changes in terms of your metrics or other behaviors, even including in machine learning, we didn't talk about model monitoring and things like that, for example, but a lot of it is ties into the similar underlying foundations, which is how do you explain the key drivers behind things that change? And how do you take corrective action to, to, to mitigate deviations that you see in production? So those things are a big focus areas for us as we, of investment as we go forward. That's a great point you bring up. How, how do you build that out? Is that more of a, I guess, I guess you, ha- you have all these dashboards, visuals, reports, with these metrics, are, are y'all able to or planning to or be able to explain anomalies automatically within that? Or is there a manual step that has to take place? Yeah, so I think it's it's partly both in the sense that the, the metrics creation and publishing obviously is the work of many data scientists and so on. And that's something that we, we take take those metrics pretty seriously. So we built a metrics platform, specially customized for building our all of the metrics at LinkedIn and really have that development and operational rigor around it. So you have you know thousands of metrics that are produced daily, hourly, real time. And all of them, you want to be able to have a single source of truth, which is what our platform provide. But out of the box, you also then want to have the ability of monitoring those metrics out of the gate. When those metrics deviate from what is um, expected or what you have forecast, you want the ability to explain what might have gotten wrong. And we certainly have built a lot of technologies to be able to do that and are in the process of building even more technology to do that. But not all of it is, I think, can be automated completely. Right. As in, there are things that change because of seasonalities that can be explained. Some of the things are because of software deployments or data related issues that can, that you hope to be explained as well. And there are some things that are just changes in the world, changes in user behavior. There are some things that just change organically. And that always requires good human input into figuring out what actually the, the root cause of some of these things are. You want the technologies that are able to point what could be the key drivers of those changes. And those become then the input to, to, to humans who are actually then tasked with figuring out what exactly went wrong and then fixing it. That's a great point. And yeah, de- definitely high quality data is a challenge. And I, I love how y'all are trying to bring forth potential deviations on what the causes are. Because the worst thing is when you're presenting these metrics to the executives and they ask a question, and you don't know why it is that way, but this way provides a little bit more clarity to that question. Exactly. The first, the first thing is the, the way I think about it is a three-step thing. The first thing you have to have is obviously the observability, right? If you don't have the right uh, monitoring or observability, you don't know when the things are going wrong. The second, as you explained, the moment you tell somebody that this is a metric that has gone down ten percent. The next question is going to be naturally, why has that happened? And do we understand why? And you better have an answer to that. And (laughs) the third one, obviously, is if you're able to prevent those issues as much as possible, then that's really as good as you can get right now. Organic changes that are happening due to reasons outside of your control, of course, there's little you can do about but a large fraction of these changes happen because of things that are within your control, for example, data issues 
or software deployments or experiments that you're running on the site. And those are the things that, you know, and things for, like that happen due to data issues, for example. We built a system called Data Sentinel that allows users of the data to make assertions about the what they expect from the data, right? And when those issues get caught at data processing time, the consumers of those data have the option of deciding what they want to do with it. So they could decide to ignore it because it doesn't matter for them, or maybe it's a small deviation that they can live with, or they can decide that, hey, it's a serious deviation that's going to uh, cascade as data issues downstream, and they can take corrective action as in saying, hey, don't push this data over to the next system over because you're just then perpetuating the data issues. That's those, those three steps, I think, can go a long way in terms of ensuring data quality in your ecosystem. Yeah, I love that. Where do you see data architectures fitting over the next two to five years from now? That's going to be, I think, an interesting question because the only thing that's constant in the data ecosystem today is change. Yes, and true. and certainly for us, I think, I think migrating to the cloud, of course, is a big priority. And having that foundation and I think where the innovations that it'll spur to go on further, I think, will be the things to watch. Now, of course, there are a few things that we are you know, still doing that we are not re yet ready to talk about, new systems that we are building. But as, as they say, watch this space because there's plenty more of, of what's coming where we've already built a lot of these things and there's a ton more innovation coming in this space. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast today. I know I learned a ton. and I'm sure our listeners did as well, so thank you. Hey, thank you, Travis. Uh, thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. It was great. And hopefully the listeners of this podcast can take away from some of the learnings that we've had. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.